Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat. Next to the fire. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. Just a little over a year ago, authorities responded to a fatal crash off a California cliff. Seven people died in that crash, and those bodies were later identified as Sarah and Jennifer Hart, both 38 years old, who had adopted several children, including Marcus, Hannah, Jeremiah, Abigail, and Sierra Hart. The remains of the sixth child, Dante, Devante Hart, have not been found to this day. The Mendocino County Sheriff's Office said their investigation into the case is complete, and now they're holding a coroner's inquest to determine the manner of death for each person. The past becomes present. Just as Sarah Hart was completing the conditions of probation for malicious child abuse in Minnesota, the adoption of the second group of siblings by Jen Hart became final. This enabled Jen to finally remove the children from public schools and, more importantly, remove the children from the purview of mandatory reporters. Unfortunately, the complaints hadn't stopped after the incident where Sarah Hart had taken the blame. They continued throughout that year while the children were still required to remain in public school. In 2011, many students in Hannah's class secretly gave her food. Despite being six years old, she was the size of a toddler. Hannah would often report stomach pains due to hunger to the school nurse, but asked that the nurse not discuss the issue with her mother. One time, Jen became so enraged by the regular concerns discussed by school officials that she shoved an entire banana down Hannah's throat. When the nurse called again about the same concerns... Jen again became enraged and told the nurse Hannah was, quote, playing the food card and to just give her water. The Minnesota caseworker told the Oregon Department of Social Services that the school stopped calling the family because the bruises would show up the next day on the children's bodies in what was suspected to be retaliation. The Minnesota caseworker had Hannah evaluated by a doctor for her small size. The doctor mirrored what Jen said and reported, quote, she is just small and being adopted. We don't know their biofamily history. When the children were asked about what forms of discipline they were given, they reported that they were routinely sent to bed without food for misbehaving, made to stand in the corner for hours, and were even made to stay in bed all day, wearing blackout eye masks as a form of sensory deprivation, as another form of punishment. This, however, would be the last time any of the children would ever say a disparaging word about their mother's forms of discipline to others. After Minnesota, the children knew to stay quiet. When the hearts were asked about withholding food, they insisted that, because the children were adopted, they were high risk and came with food issues. Time and time again, the mother's racially tinged fabrications drowned out the complaints of the children. The Minnesota caseworker stated that, These women look normal. And they give the professional assessors the same story that the children were high-risk drug babies with food issues. 
Coupled with the new and similar allegations in Oregon, the Minnesota caseworkers in hindsight was now convinced the children were still being abused. The children were ultimately failed by the state of Minnesota, just as they were failed by the state of Washington, where the family fled in order to escape mounting pressure from the Oregon Department of Social Services. As part of the children's new homeschooling curriculum, Jen began traveling with them without Sarah, who had to stay behind and work a full-time job. Jen and the Heart Tribe, as they became known as, were educated on the musical festival circuit and through social activism events. The Heart Tribe became regular attendees, even being invited to participate in music videos and often allowed on stage as human props. Devante was prominently placed in most of Jen's photos and can always be seen wearing a free hug sign around his neck. Many of Jen's friends believed Devante was Jen's favorite child, receiving special treatment for carrying out her wishes as an obedient human performance accessory. He is often displayed in her online social media persona as the main player in her perfect, ultra-woke family. There will be many of these, quote, close friends of the hearts from the traveling music festival scene who insisted Jen was the perfect mother, a savior even, for her ability to raise six drug babies as she repeatedly referred to them. Most people seem to look past the expressionless sunken eyes of the emaciated bodies. The mantra apparently explained away any doubt. The lack of individuality within the children are the way they automatically fell into line with military precision, or how they were on a special organic vegan diet to combat symptoms of drug addiction wasn't questioned. Where some might have seen fear, friends saw respect and gratitude for their mom and savior. They simply took Jen at her word. When Jen allowed a few people to get a closer look, however, they saw something wasn't right, so they spoke up. Shortly after moving to Oregon, two separate anonymous tipsters reported similar types of abuse. One said there were six children who appeared to be emaciated and acted strangely by lining up as if in a military boot camp. The Oregon caseworker made contact with the Hearts by leaving her card inside the door. When Sarah Hart returned the call a few days later, she informed the caseworker that the children were homeschooled and were currently unavailable to be interviewed for a few weeks. She delayed the meeting by stating that Jen and the children were currently traveling to the coast to pick berries and to participate in volunteer work. The social worker also requested that each of the children receive a medical evaluation prior to her interview. However, the hearts were reluctant. But finally consenting to a medical evaluation and compromise that they can meet with the children altogether. Despite five or six children falling well below the expected medical growth chart for their respective ages, the doctor noted that she had no health concerns for the children, since they might just be genetically small in stature. The doctor didn't make any mention of the level of unlikely coincidence that that would need to be involved with two separate and unrelated sibling groups all with various fathers being similarly predisposed to small and emaciated bodies. One can presume that after meeting Jen, the doctor believed the accusations of targeted persecutions of a white lesbian and the difficulties she encountered raising a biracial family. Jen's narrative was so effective, it seemed, that it even countered medical evidence and common sense to the contrary. When the children were eventually interviewed, it did appear that they had been coached. An anonymous tipster had identified the oldest child, Marcus, as one target of abuse by Jen. Yet Marcus had nothing but glowing praise for his mother's. Marcus, who was 15 at the time of his interview, reported he was in the homeschooling equivalent of ninth grade. 
He admitted he'd been abused in his previous foster home and how extremely grateful he was to the hearts for the many opportunities they'd given him. He felt he was contributing to the world and he liked to attend music festivals with his family. Next, Hannah, 11 years old at the time, was interviewed. She also appeared small and younger than her actual age. Missing her two front permanent teeth, Hannah told the caseworker she lost them when she was running, which was against the rules and slipped on the hardwood floor. She'd have to wait till she was 18 years old to obtain a retainer with teeth. The anonymous tipster noted that both Hannah and Marcus were both often targets of Jen's rage and discipline. Yet when Hannah was asked about family discipline, she stayed quiet. Next, Devante, who was the most talkative and outgoing of the children, was interviewed. He was the first child to introduce himself and was observed in his signature fedora and free hug sign. He appeared to be very small for his age and was also below the growth chart for both height and weight. During his interview, Jen stated that Devante was very active in the musical festival community and was, quote, famous across the nation for his free hugs. Jen told the social worker Devante was six years old when he was adopted, and he only knew how to say the word shit and fuck when he first came to live with them. Now, according to Jen's Facebook posts, he had the emotional and intellectual IQ of a modern-day philosopher. It is common knowledge in adoption circles that the children who are adopted, and especially children adopted from abusive households, own their own stories. These stories are personal and belong to each individual child. Professionals suggest not telling family members, and especially not strangers, anything negative about their child's life before they became a part of their current families. These types of negative comments can cause children to feel additional trauma and shame surrounding their adoption. As all adoptions begin with loss, it is imperative to use discretion when and if the details of their adoptions are discussed with others. Adoptive parents should also refrain from making disparaging or judgmental remarks about their child's biological family. Those are details a child can choose to share in their own way and in their own time, if ever. This sort of conscientious framework shouldn't be new information for anyone who has gone through the foster care licensing process and has had any parenting classes required as part of the background check and home study. However, Jen seemed to have shrugged off all this advice. She relished telling anyone and everyone that her children were drug babies. Born from mentally ill and abusive bio-families, it was often the subject of her social media posts, consistently taking credit for single-handedly taking broken and abused children with learning disabilities and psychotropic drug dependencies and curing them of their afflictions through an organic diet and a nomadic lifestyle of giving back. Jen was the savior, and she wasn't going to let anyone forget it. Perhaps this is why Jen seemed to make sure to tell Oregon caseworkers that Devante had been exposed to violence, drugs, and even once had a gun held to his head. Despite this tragic history, Jen was able to take Devante from a savage to a human who not only thrived, but who was excelling in life and extremely interested in social justice issues. Devante was Jen's poster child for her own personal success as a white savior mother. Abigail, who was nine at the time, was next to be interviewed. Despite being the size of a four or five-year-old, she also reportedly had no health concerns. However, the caseworker had a different opinion. She noted that Abigail showed little emotion and appeared withdrawn. As you may recall, listener, Abigail's assault back in Minnesota when she was six years old was the cause of Sarah Hart's conviction for malicious punishment on a child. Yet when Abigail was asked about discipline, 
She looked at Jen and remained quiet. Jen offered that she was told Abigail was, quote, borderline mentally retarded when she came to her at two years of age. Yet again, thanks to Jen, Abigail was now a success story. Despite not being enrolled in any official homeschooling curriculum, Abigail was said to now be operating at her correct grade level. Jeremiah was also nine years old at the time of the Oregon interview. He was the only child who fell within his age group on the growth chart, but just barely. He was reserved and said very little. Again, Jen chose to do the talking for Jeremiah as well. She labeled him as globally delayed and likely autistic when he arrived at the Hart's home. Once again, under Jen and Sarah's sunshine, fresh air, and love parenting, he was now at grade level and cured of autism. The youngest of six children, Sierra, was eight years old at the time of the Oregon interview. Like Jeremiah, she was withdrawn and showed little animation. She did offer she was in second grade and liked being homeschooled. Jen seemed to dominate the entire interview and was unwilling to allow the children to be interviewed without her present. She also dominated Sarah's narrative as well. She would often jump in and answer questions directed at Sarah. Jen answering for both of them insisted when the children were punished, they were redirected or talked to. Sometimes they were told to meditate for five minutes. Most of the children agreed with the statement. However, some said nothing at all. Sarah was the only working adult in the household, leaving the parenting and discipline primarily up to Jen. The couple insisted the family ate only organic and wholly sustainable food, which contributed to the children's overall success. Jen also explained the reason the children weren't seeing regular doctors and dentists was because she believed in yoga, naturopathic medicine, and healing. As for income passed with Sarah made as a manager at Kohl's, Jen explained the family got subsidy from the state of Texas somewhere between two dollars and $3,000. This made it possible for her and the children to travel several months throughout the years to social justice rallies and music festivals, where they were all famous and beloved. However, the anonymous tipster who was the impetus for the interviews refuted Jen's homeopathic lifestyle. She reported Jen ate meat and dairy, but denied it to her children. She described Jen as controlling and manipulative and saw Sarah as submissive with very little interest in the children. The children were often jerked around roughly and taken to the bathroom for interrogation and punishment. The tipster recalled the family once stayed overnight with her and had pizza for dinner. Jen allowed each child to have only one piece of pizza for dinner. The next morning, the tipster remarked that her husband must have raided the pizza in the night as there wasn't any left. This sent Jen into a rage. She grabbed Sierra from a dead sleep and dragged her into the bathroom. After the interrogation was complete and none of the children confessed, they weren't allowed to eat breakfast. Instead, they were placed side by side on a mattress with blindfolds and made to stay there for seven hours. Another anonymous tipster mentioned an incident when the other children weren't allowed to speak to Marcus or wish him happy birthday. Yet Jen posted that the Hart family chose to celebrate everything in their families because, quote, why not? They celebrated birthdays, adoption days, first meeting days, and even celebrated birthdays for cats, dogs, and chickens. Yet, this is not what the tipster observed. The tipster also reported the children weren't allowed to speak without raising their hands first. They were punished for laughing or even emoting through facial expressions at the dinner table. Of significant note, the tipster insisted that Jen punish the children by restricting and or withholding food. Even when they were allowed to eat, the tipster added, it wasn't a sustainable quantity for growing children. 
She said she once observed the children eating extra food, and when Jen re-entered the room, they all denied eating anything at all. It was clear Jen manipulated the children and turned them against each other. She'd coach them to act and behave a certain way at public outings, but she would never allow the children to be alone with anyone except her. Jen would cut off anyone who disagreed with her parenting styles and techniques. She had isolated herself and Sarah from families who had commented or challenged Jen's parenting style. Yet, during the interview, Jen had painted a picture to the contrary, and the children readily agreed with their mother. What else could they do considering the unorthodox method in which they were interviewed in front of their alleged abusers? Jen also shared the children's schedule and routine. She stated the children learn about food and where it comes from, as well as helping to prepare the family's daily meals. She explained that because of the family's alternative beliefs that they didn't watch or have TV, Jen emphasized she was all about teaching love and compassion to the children. She believed in getting them involved in the music festival community. They even participated in protests. Jen explained away the many anonymous abuse reports as targeted forms of racism and bigotry, that she was personally targeted for being a white vegetarian lesbian with black children. Their chosen lifestyle was the reason her family received repeated harassment in Minnesota. They specifically moved to Oregon because they believed the community would be more welcoming of her chosen spiritual and activism beliefs. She kept reiterating that the children were all high-risk drug babies with terrible food issues. This was a narrative that had always worked in the past and this time wouldn't be any different. Because the doctor who evaluated the children believed them to be healthy, despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary... The Oregon Department of Human Services closed the case, citing, Unable to determine abuse. This means that, while there are signs of coaching and abuse, and a history of abuse with conviction in another state, there were no provable allegations here in Oregon. In the summary analysis, the caseworker noted that the children were, quote, completely dependent upon the caregivers, and do not have regular contact with any mandatory reporters. Yet the case was still closed without any recommendations for monitored follow-up. Life, as the Hart tribe knew it, went on as normal. As the children got older, they never got any bigger. If any of Jen's self-described close friends had any concerns for the Hart children, it certainly wasn't reported again. People they came into contact with continued to pour praise and gratitude onto Jen. They were in awe of her desire and willingness to take on the difficult task of transforming the lives of, quote, high-risk drug babies into flourishing and obedient children. Jen's dutiful adopted child, Devante, decided to sell his usually free hugs as a fundraiser in celebration for his upcoming 14th birthday. Jen memorialized the event for her Facebook audience, using the opportunity to again discuss how her children were continually faced with overt racism. She told the story about Devante standing at an Honor the Earth Day event, a man came up to them, wagging his finger in Devante's face, stating, quote, Fucking I'm so sick of them mooching off the back of hardworking Americans. Jen went on to share her many thoughts on racism, and how she wouldn't allow the opinions of one bad person to ruin the event for her. These type of events continued until May of 2017 when the Hart family moved from Oregon to Woodland, Washington, another state, in order to make a fresh start. While the abuse had continued unabated with no mandatory reporters to answer to since the case had been closed, all of this was about to change when Hannah Hart, with her two missing front teeth, looking more like a 7-year-old than a 15-year-old, jumped out of a second-story window and fled to the DeKalb family doorstep next door. After that night, Dana DeKalb went out of her way to interact with the Hart children, 
but knew it wasn't going to be easy. In fact, she only spoke with Devante, and only once a week, when she'd wait for him to take the trash cans to the curb. That's when she could rush out and talk to him. It had to be done quickly, and it had to be done secretly. Dana knew, because if Jen caught them, it would all come to an end. Devante would eventually confirm what Hannah had told them seven months earlier on their doorstep was in fact true. He begged her not to call Child Protective Services. He asked for food instead, explaining he and his siblings would go days without food, and when they were fed at all, it was very little. He asked Dana to leave the items inside of a hollow cinder block at the end of their shared driveway. At first, Devante asked for a package of tortillas. Then he started asking for more food in larger quantities. He asked for peanut butter and cured meats like salami or pepperoni. Each time he would tell Dana not to tell his mom or authorities. The last time, he asked Dana to put the food in a box by the fence line. He explained he was in trouble and wouldn't be allowed outside, so his sister would retrieve the food instead. On the 22nd, he asked Dana if she had called Child Protective Services yet. That is when Dana DeKalb knew something needed to be done. She called the very next day. Dana had been watching the house all day, talking to the caseworker on the phone. The caseworker actually went to Dana's house by mistake. As she was inside talking to Dana, Jen drove up in her GMC Yukon and went inside her house. The caseworker followed by knocking on the door, but no one answered. She walked around back, but was unable to see anyone inside. She was forced to leave her card inside the front door, requesting contact. There was nothing more she could legally do. Approximately 30 minutes later, Sarah came home early from work screeching up the shared gravel driveway. The next day, the family piled into Jen Hart's 2003 GMC Yukon, and 54 hours later, they would all be dead. What happened in those missing days would be painstakingly investigated and recreated through surveillance video, electronic monitoring, and GPS data. The end result of this thorough investigation would tell a very dark story. The Inquest Because of the intense interest in the Hart family crash, and because of those involved were deceased, it didn't appear there was going to be a traditional sense of closure or justice in this case. However, as the various law enforcement jurisdictions came together to compile their respective reports, a clear picture of events began to emerge. All involved agreed that these children were failed at many turns in the dozen years that Jen portrayed herself as a savior, while continually disparaging her adopted children and their biological families. The Mendocino County Sheriff's Department, which held the jurisdiction over the crash site, decided to put an end to Jen and Sarah Hart's facade. They intended to shine a light on the cold, hard, brutal facts of the case. In order to do so, they decided to avail themselves of rarely used legal method of holding a public inquest that would end in an official finding of fact by jury. The inquest was held over two days. By the end, there would be little doubt that behind the smiling photos of the Hart tribe, there was a life of abuse, starvation, and intentional cruelty. There was even talk that Sarah Hart was the seventh victim. Despite what has been depicted by Jen's Facebook audience and festival friends, there were no happy times for these children. To assert otherwise would be a slap in the face to the memory of the six innocent lives that Jen and Sarah Hart chose to destroy. The SUV driven by Jen in the crash had the equivalent of a black box that recorded the vehicle data before it went over the cliff. 
The airbag control module recorded five seconds of data that showed the SUV sat idle before suddenly accelerating and plunging toward the water and ultimately landing upside down on the rocks near the shoreline. The lack of skid marks near the cliff's edge also supported the theory that the vehicle did not attempt to brake. In addition, the medical examiner testified that Jen was legally drunk with a blood alcohol level of 0.102. The legal limit is 0.08. So from the data that my team had, we had uh, a scenario where a vehicle was pointed at a a cliff face, at approximately a 60-foot tall cliff face, and uh, the brakes were on for at least two seconds. So we don't know if, if the brakes were on longer than that. They could have, you know, the brakes could not have been on for much longer than two seconds. We have two seconds of data. So we know the brakes are on for two seconds. And then we have data of the vehicles at um, either stopped or at one mile per hour. And then we have it accelerating to over those three seconds and about 50 feet to approximately 20 miles per hour. And we have, again, along with that, the, during those three seconds before the vehicle launches, the throttle going from... We have... Uh, the, the vehicle going from 34% throttle to 100% throttle, and there's no subsequent application of the brake. So, in, in terms of a collision sequence, you know, when you talk about seconds, sec- seconds don't seem long, but in a collision sequence, seconds mean something. Uh, collisions happen; uh, they can happen in fractions of a second. Um, you have one one thousand, two one thousand, three one thousand, and during that time, you're going from idling. What the, 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 the brake has been on, and now you're on the throttle, and the throttle is going to 100%. You're accelerating to, to 20 miles per hour um, as you head towards that cliff face. Uh, our analysis of, the, of, of that data was that this was consistent with this being an intentional act. Based on the data alone and the unlikelihood anyone would need to apply a 100% full force of throttle, it was determined that the driver, Jen Hart, intentionally drove herself and her family of eight over the cliff to their deaths. Evidence showed that Jen was drunk when she went over the cliff. Also revealed was that the rest of the family had high levels of a generic form of Benadryl, a sleep aid, in their systems. Sarah would have had a would have had to taken 42 single dosage units. And the reason that we say dosage units is because it also comes in pill form along with liquid form. Um, during our investigation, uh, we did note that in the vehicle we found both liquid uh, forms of um, diphenhydramine or Benadryl. We also found uh, pill capsules um, or a pill bottle f- mixed with um, a number, a numerous different types of drugs, which some of them were allergy pills and stuff, but other ones were actually. Um, uh, diphenhydramine were some of the active ingredients in those pills as well. Um, Marcus, after doing the math, would have had to take in 19, approximately 19.2 uh, single dose units. Um, Abigail would have had to take in 14 dosage units. And Jeremiah would have had to take in uh, 8.8 single dosage units um, in order for them to get that level at that point that the blood is drawn. Now, that doesn't mean that they took that number. That's just the minimum number of units that they would have taken at that point. They could have been given more, but just at the time of the autopsy, when we drew their blood, that's what they would have been in their system. As the picture came into focus, it appeared that a drunk Jen drove her entire family over a jagged cliff to their deaths. What was not known yet was if Sarah was also complicit in this decision. 
Investigators were able to recover data from a handheld GPS device that captured every place the Hearts had traveled beginning in 2010, all the way until the day before they died. It was determined on their final day they intentionally turned off the device so it could no longer capture their movements. It was on that day that investigators believed Jen and Sarah entered into a pact that they would both commit suicide and murder the children, taking any witness to their abuse with them. This was determined by the fact that they used evasive measures to avoid being tracked, including paying cash each place they had stopped. At that point, investigators needed to rely on phone GPS data, which was spotty along the coast and eyewitness testimony. During the investigation, it was discovered that there was a witness on the cliffside that night. Um, at that point, um, we kind of lose some of their GPS tracking um, at uh, approximately 9 at night. We see uh, we have one last um, ping, I guess you can call it, off their phone. Um, and that's indicating that they're traveling northbound on 101 uh, near the Cleone area heading north. Um, we see that they pick up several hours later, continuing to go north where they stop at uh, one of the beaches um, just near the Westport area. And then according to witnesses at that point, we have... Um, uh, an, an older couple that uh, was camping out in the Wan Creek turnout at that point in time. And uh, being a single older couple, they hear a vehicle come in. And when they hear that vehicle, the husband looks out uh, to make sure that the situation is safe and that there's not going to be any issues. Um, they see what he describes a vehicle that is similar to the Hart's vehicle, a larger vehicle, not a pickup but not a sedan, parked near their location. Um, he doesn't see any worries. He continues on his evening with his wife. At one point, um, they go to bed. Um, he says that vehicle pulled into that turnout about 11 o'clock that night. And then um, once they go to bed, he's awoken by um, an engine revving and tires um, accelerating through the gravel. And he says the last thing he hears was, what appeared to be, or the sound of, uh, as he stated, a vehicle bottoming out. Um, he exited his camper at that point. He goes out and looks around and doesn't see anything. Um, he doesn't see any lights. He doesn't hear anything else at that point. And was kind of under the assumption that um, the vehicle continued into town. Um, since he was out of his camper, he walked around to the edge of the cliff. Um, he said it was um, dark out. He wasn't able to see anything, um, but um, given his uh, background and where he lived out of Alaska, knowing the ocean and, and wildlife fairly well, he stated to me that he felt like he heard um, somebody hollering for help. Jen's family and friends reported that Jen never drank, not even socially. So for Jen to have such a high level of alcohol in her system proved to the investigators that the suicide was a planned event. In an incident like this, where we have um, two ladies that are trying to, um, at this point in our, um, we feel like are trying to um, end everybody's life, um, it was the investigator's belief that she was drinking in order to build up her courage uh, to do this horrible deed. But um, again, for somebody to never drink to be at that level of alcohol shows that she would have been impaired. 
CHP investigator Slates testified that the other findings of note during the autopsies included bruising on the back of Abigail Hart's legs and behind. It was also determined that this bruising was in the process of healing at the time of her death, and therefore sustained days or weeks before the crash. It may have been this bruising that caused the family to take off as they had in the past when they were facing an inspection by Child Protective Services. It is unknown if Devante or Hannah had bruising on their bodies, since Hannah's body wasn't fully recovered and Devante's body wasn't recovered at all. Evidence strongly suggested that Jen was losing control of her perfect Facebook family. This may have been what led her and Sarah to make such a grave decision. One of the electronic devices the investigators were able to recover from the accident included Sarah Hart's cell phone. It was this cell phone that proved to the investigators that Sarah Hart was complicit in the decision to end the lives of their six children in a deadly murder-suicide pact. So, once we get to Sarah's phone, we indicated there was indication that she was, had been doing some Google searches while the vehicle was in motion. Um, in those Google searches, uh, Sarah began asking Google questions such as... A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Can 500 milligrams of Benadryl kill a 120-pound woman? What over-the-counter medications can you take to overdose? How can I easily overdose on over-counter medications? Is death by drowning relatively painless? How long does it take to die from hypothermia in water while drowning in a car? What will happen when overdosing with Benadryl? One of the last searches that she did on her phone was while they're traveling through Oregon, and it was a search that she entered in and it, requesting Google to identify no-kill shelters for dogs.
Those searches started around midnight on March 24th. Each of them were made using voice control while the car was moving, assuming Jen was driving like she usually did on family car trips. It's also important to note that Sarah deleted each of these searches from her phone, proving that Jen and Sarah both intended to control the narrative surrounding their family and death. It was their intention that their deaths and the death of their children would be chalked up to a tragic accident. The bodies of the Hart family's two dogs that were known to travel with the family weren't found at the wreckage site, nor were they recovered later. Is it possible that Jen and Sarah valued the lives of their dogs over the lives of their own children? Did they grant their dogs a last-minute reprieve by dropping them at a no-kill shelter or abandoning them at a campsite? Investigator Slate testified that the Hart's home was a stark contradiction to the life they portrayed online. Most of the rooms were sterile and empty. They didn't even have enough beds for each child. There wasn't any indication the six children had lived with them for the past 12 years. There were no toys or personal items present for any of the children. The only rooms that were decorated were Jen and Sarah's bedroom and the living room. The refrigerator was another contradiction to their social media lives. Jen would get into long discussions over the pro-plant-based diet documentary entitled Forks Over Knives. She was a strong proponent that animals were pets and not food, yet the very organized refrigerator was filled with meat and dairy products. Um, during this interaction, the family had dinner together. The husband had ordered pizzas, and uh, it was very apparent to these people that um, the children were extremely disciplined, um, almost to the point of being robotic. Uh, if Jennifer stated that uh, observed a certain time, she would state that it is now time to go to the bathroom. All the kids would stand up, go stand in an orderly line, and wait their turn to go to the bathroom. Another incident was when it was time to go to bed, she would order the kids to stand up, they'd go uh, get ready for bed, and all single file walk in, into their bedroom. Um, another incident with the same family was that um, there was uh, the leftover pizza had, it was observed the next morning that this pizza had been eaten sometime through the night. At that point in time, um, it was observed that uh, Jennifer had pulled Jeremiah to the side and um, taken him to the bathroom. We don't know what was said in the bathroom uh, at that point, but when they came out, she ordered him to go lay face down on the floor um, for the rest of the day without food. There has been other documentations through the CPS reports that they would make the kids lay down on the floor um, in a timeout type manner. So this is, uh, to me, appears to be a, a pattern that seems to be reappearing with the hearts. Part of the process in determining the cause of the accident, the investigators vetted and interviewed those friends of the hearts who knew the families the best. Some of these friends believed wholeheartedly that Jen was capable of killing her family. Um, that when the hearts left their home, I don't think they knew what, what they were going to do at that point. Um, I do know, I do think that they know CPS was there. I do know that um, in interviewing witnesses, one of the final questions I would ask all my witnesses um, would be, based on the fact and how well you know Sarah and Jennifer Hart, would this be an act that they could do? Would, this be, would they be the type of people that would say, if I can't have my children, nobody can have my children? And most of the witnesses either stated, yes, Jennifer would say that, or yes, 
that would be a decision that either both of them would make. It took just one hour for the jury to agree with the Friends of the Hearts and come back with a verdict of suicide as to Sarah and Jen Hart and homicide as to Marcus, Hannah, Abigail, Jeremiah, Devante, and Sierra Hart. The signs were apparent for a very long time that the story of the Hart family was never going to end well. They closed themselves off from anyone who didn't agree with their extreme views on parenting, and they counted the majority of their friends as the people they only interacted with through a computer screen, or briefly at music festivals. The Hearts adopted six children, and over a period of a dozen years, they stripped them of their dignity, their individuality, and ultimately their futures. One of the questions hotly debated about this case was whether there were good times, Were some of those smiles real? Were some of those captured moments depictions of actual happy times? It appears from all the evidence, all the testimony at the inquest, and all of the comments from close friends, that the answer is a resounding no. Where there is an element of fear at any given moment, there cannot be true happiness. Jen didn't see her children as human. She certainly didn't treat them as if they were. Her performative wokeness caused her to fictionalize encounters and to create contrived dialogue that didn't exist. Her embedded racist views would peek out from behind her carefully crafted facade. When your abusers seek to control even your ability to see a hand in front of your face, what happiness can be found? Did Jen use eye masks to blindfold the children up until the very last moments of their lives? Before the crash, she stopped at a Dollar Tree store to purchase toothbrushes, toothpaste, pretzels, and one additional eye mask. Maybe that one was for Sarah. From the searches on Sarah's phone, it was obvious she didn't want to be coherent during the crash. Even on their way to death, she sought to control the children's free will, their very senses. But were there happy moments? For Jen and Sarah Hart, there might have been. Moments filled with accolades and praise from all those who believe the image they crafted through intimidation and abuse. All of Jen's acts of kindnesses were for strangers or for causes she used so she could manipulate the way others saw her. In death, however, Jen and Sarah will be remembered as the abusers they were in life. And sadly, that isn't true justice. There is no true justice to be had in this case. Would a National Registry for Convicted Child Abusers have changed this outcome? Possibly. Yet we still don't have one in this country. It would be a great legacy if one were created in the names of the Hart children. <laughs>